Good morning. morning. I missed you all last week. I'm glad to be back with you. Had a good vacation time away. But let's, let's hop back into the Word. That's what's most important this morning. And we are picking back up in where we left off in 1 Peter, which would be chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Verses 7 through 11. If you don't have a Bible, there is likely a blue Bible located underneath a seat around you, and that's there for you to use. You can open that Bible to page 1016. That'll bring you to our text. I was in this text a few weeks ago, a few Sundays ago. So this is part two. And we didn't get too far. It was a long introduction and primarily focused on the first statement in the text that we have here before us. There will be a part three. So let's see how far we get this morning. But if you would, just follow along as I, as I read from God's Word. Verses 7 through 11, the Apostle Peter recorded this. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore... Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So let me do a little review with you. Just very little, and then uh, we'll step back into the text. Just to remind you of what I've already said, there are many uh, statements of exhortation here. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. Keep loving one another earnestly. Show hospitality to one another. Use your gift that you have received to serve one another. Okay, All of those exhortations draw an inference from the from the first statement, that is the coming of the end, or that the end of all things is at hand. You should, you should read it in that light. They're all, they're all driving from that, from that statement. In other words, because the end of all things is at hand, believers should live in the following way, as is laid out there in the verses. So that's the first thing. Second, I want to remind you of the immediate context of this passage, right? It's in a letter, and in this particular section, it happens to be in how we've divided up this letter, chapter 4, and it's in the middle of chapter 4. On the other side of chapter 4, on the front side, and on the back side are both sections on suffering. The letter itself, one of the major themes of the letter, is suffering. And again, we've talked about this, but it's not... Uh, necessarily just a general suffering that all of mankind experiences, but a suffering for the sake of Christ, a suffering for the sake of righteousness, a suffering for being a Christian, 
that kind of suffering. So this passage, you need to remember as we read it, and I'll keep bringing you back to this thought, it is written in the context of suffering, sandwiched, if you will, in that context. So Peter makes this statement, the end of all things is near, and then follows with the various exhortations in the context of Christian suffering. just want you to understand that. So the way I would, the way I would uh, big view, kind of picture this section is I would say this, that Peter here reminds his readers, they are Christians, and they are Christians in local churches, as we saw that in verse 1. He's writing to local churches in various areas in what we would now call uh, modern-day Turkey. He is writing to them, and he reminds them here in this section that the end of all things is at hand. And, as we spoke about last time, in light of that most glorious and stimulating reality, he exhorts them to do the following, as we just read. Right? So, be self-controlled and sober-minded, love one another, show hospitality, so on and so forth. So that in the midst of their present suffering, they would be motivated, grounded, and fortified for the the task before them, for the important mission that God has given them to make Christ known, to make disciples, which, by the way, happens to be the same task for us as well. It has not changed. It has not changed. That is what God has called us to do as a local church here in North Fontana and every other local church that God has planted throughout this world to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Okay? So, let me remind you again, because we focused a lot on the end of all things as at hand. That's a significant statement, a significant statement. And it's in light of that statement that these exhortations are given. And that statement is made, as I said, in the context of suffering to help his Christian readers be strengthened, encouraged, motivated, fortified for the great task that they have before them, okay? When you think of the end of all things as at hand, you might think, because of the word end, of cessation, like termination. It's over, that kind of thing. Done, tragedy, doomsday. But that is not how you should understand the use of the word, or the, actually the word here, end. You should not understand it that way. It should be taken to mean the attainment of a goal, the attainment of a goal, or the fulfillment or consummation of something. And I mentioned to you last time, consummation, I like that word, it's a good word to use here. You might, you might even say the consummation of all things is at hand. The fulfillment of all things is at hand. The goal for which all things are moving towards is at hand. But I like, I like the word consummation. And that simply means the point at which something is brought to completion. Completion. That is the proper way to understand uh, the use of the word end, end here. And as I quoted from one scholar last time, the end of all things is at hand would mean that all of the major events in God's plan of redemption have occurred 
And now all things are ready for Christ to return and rule. That is the consummation of all things. All things are moving. All of, all of redemptive history has been moving to this great and final climactic point. The rule and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ over this earth. Now, that's the way to think about that. The end of all things is at hand. It is, it is near. It is at the door. And Peter can say that because all of the other events leading up to that point have come about. They've come to pass. Now we are waiting. The church is waiting for this last great final act. And it is all, and we can see all of redemptive history has been moving to that point. And it has passed now. It's as if we're in a drama. It's passed now, and we're waiting for this. We're on the verge of this last great act. It could happen at any moment. Christ is at the door. He could crack open the door and bring about the culmination of all things, the consummation of all things. Now, I want to, I said this last time, I want to keep pushing that point, though. I want to keep expanding upon that. The end of all things is at hand. Because it's really the statement that's driving everything else. And, and if you get that, then you'll get, I think, the reason for all, everything else that Peter said. It'll make it more alive to you, more significant to you. So, let me take you to Acts chapter 1 real quick. We're going to go through a few things. Again, we'll see how far we get, and we'll, we'll drive home again at this point next week as well, probably. Acts chapter 1. I just want to read the first nine verses to you. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. So, who wrote uh, Acts? Luke. Uh, The same guy that wrote the Gospel of Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So, if you would, Luke is, uh, Acts, or I'm sorry, the Gospel of Luke is like book one, and Acts is book two. And so, we see in verse one, in the first book... He's referring to the Gospel of Luke. And he's writing here to Theophilus. That was the initial target, and obviously this was a letter, book, was made part of the canon, spread to all the other churches and was read. But here, Luke, the apostle, he writes, In the first book, Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering, okay, this is his death on the cross, by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, this is after his resurrection, and speaking about, what was he speaking to them about? The kingdom of God, okay? So, just the timeline. Luke just says, listen, I wrote in the gospel of Luke about Christ and his life, his death, his resurrection. 
After his resurrection, he appeared to his apostles who he had chosen, and for 40 days he spoke to them, instructed them on the kingdom of God. Yeah? You with me so far? And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So this is a reference to Pentecost, which Acts will uh, give us details about as we continue, if we were to continue on in the book. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I just want you to keep that statement in your mind. So for 40 days, Christ... After his resurrection, before his ascension, has been talking to his apostles about the kingdom of God. And out of that conversation, they now ask, they're excited, they are excited, and they want to know, okay, Christ, is this Jesus, is this the time, is this now the time where you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Just keep that thought. Seven, he said to them, yep. Nope. Uh, no, in a few years. No, in, in, uh, when the clock turns to 2000 that year, you know, that's when it will happen, or 2020 or 2030. Right? He didn't say that. He said, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Again, reference to the Pentecost that will occur shortly. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea. These are, these are circles going farther out. And Samaria and to the end of the earth. That is what I want you to be thinking about. That is your task. That is your mission. And I'm going to empower you for that mission. Obviously, I'm just... I'm adding a little bit here. I'm going to empower you for that mission by giving you the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Concerning the kingdom, that's exciting. I spent 40 days talking to you about that. It is coming. In the meantime, witness to me, the king, that when I do come, they might receive and be received into my kingdom. Okay? That's the idea. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Okay? Now, uh, I, I think we have been doing a study called Be, Behold Your God. Behold Your God. Yes. A fantastic study. And, and one of the things in the study that we've been talking about or has been said is we... Christians often have a, uh, a not a proper view of God or one that is not all that it should be, okay? Not all that it should be. And because of that, it impacts their life negatively. They need to know God in, in all of his fullness as he has revealed himself. I, I would say the same thing concerning the kingdom of God. There is a lack of, of knowledge, a lack of understanding within the, the Christian community, I'm just generally speaking, concerning the kingdom of God. And I would like to, to read a few things to you and, and make some recommendations to you. Here's a book. 
I'm going to have it up here. You can look at it. I, I highly recommend this book. It's called The Greatness of the Kingdom by Alva J. McLean. The Greatness of the Kingdom. I can see I've marked it up quite a bit. Read through it. Fantastic. The Greatness of the Kingdom. I'm going to read just a portion. Remember, he spoke to his apostles, his chosen ones, for 40 days concerning the kingdom of God. Boy, it must be a big deal. He spent all that time talking to them about the kingdom right before he ascended. And they were so excited, they say, is this the time? Is it coming now? That's not for you to know at this point, but I'm going to give you power, be my witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth. Okay? Let me read this to you. The kingdom of God is, in a certain and important sense, the grand central theme of all holy scripture. And that alone, that statement alone might take some of you like, what? Never heard such a thing. And this is why, by the way, we encourage you to read through the entire revelation of God, Old Testament, New Testament, Genesis to Revelation, because you'll know that if you read through the entire thing. You'll know it. He goes on to say, as Dr. Bright has correctly observed, he's another gentleman who wrote a book called The Kingdom of God, the concept of the kingdom of God involves in a real sense the total message of the Bible. The Old Testament and New Testament thus stand together as the two acts of a single drama. Act 1, the Old Testament, points to its conclusion in Act 2 the New Testament, and without it, the play is an incomplete, unsatisfying thing. Let me pause there real quick. The Old Testament is predicting, looking forward to, the king and his kingdom, okay? If you just dropped off there, you'd be like, what happened? Then we have Act 2. But Act 2, the New Testament, must be read in light of Act 1. If you you don't understand Act 1, then Act 2 kind of doesn't fully makes sense, like there's something missing. What's all this talk about? The kingdom and such. Got to read Act 1. But Act 2 must be read in Act of Light 1, else its meaning will be missed, for the play is organically one. The Bible is one book. Had we to give that a book a title, we might with justice call it the book of the coming kingdom of God. That is indeed its central theme everywhere. So this morning I'm I'm you know, trying to do a couple of things. I'm trying to elaborate further on the end of all things is near to really understand the full weight of that. Remember, who would have been in that group with Jesus when he was speaking to them for 40 days about the kingdom of God? Who would have been there? Peter, that's right. He was an apostle. He was there. So it's on his mind, Right? He's aware of the kingdom. The the writer goes on to say, listen, the writer goes on to say in this book, in approving this affirmation that, that 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 is the central theme of the Bible, the kingdom of God, the coming kingdom of God, we are not forgetting the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the king eternal, and there could be no final kingdom apart from him and his work as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Pause. Listen. A kingdom has citizens. Who's the king of this coming kingdom? 
Jesus Christ, the righteous one, God, okay? It is the kingdom of God. That kingdom, then, must be inhabited with citizens, but unregenerate sinners, rebels to God, can't inhabit that kingdom, so they must be redeemed, they must be saved, they must be washed clean, they must be made new in order to enter into this glorious and grand and righteous kingdom of God on which Christ, the Lord of glory, rules and reigns from its throne. In order for there to be this great kingdom, they'll need to be a people. In order for there to be a people... They will need to be redeemed. Okay? See how you start to see? That's interesting, fascinating. Surely the primary object of our faith must always be the one who is both Lord and Savior. But as we contemplate Him and His manifold glories as revealed in the Word of God, we shall inescapably come sooner or later to the kingdom of which He is the divine center. For it is in this kingdom that the Father's eternal purpose in the incarnate Son shall be certainly and completely fulfilled. Okay, that was one book. Here's another one. This one I just got for my birthday. It's so nice. It really is. It's just a beautiful it is fancy. It is gorgeous. I'm into books. I'm of another generation. <laughs> so, I'm sure you can get it digitally, but whatever. This is a beautiful book. And this is new. And this is a systematic theology. It's called Biblical Doctrine, just put out by John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew. It's absolutely, I haven't read through the whole thing yet, just the first part. It is fantastic. Let me... Uh, read a section from that part that I've read titled, The Revelation of the Kingdom and Glory of the Lord Savior. Listen, I'll just read it. In the Old Testament, there is repeated mention of an earthly kingdom ruled by the Messiah, the Lord Savior, who will come to reign. Associated with the kingdom will be the salvation of Israel, the salvation of Gentiles, the renewal of the earth from the effects of the curse, and the bodily resurrection of God's people who have died. Pause. You know what's exciting about the resurrection? Is we will be resurrected to live bodily soul and body, in this kingdom. See, people don't get worked up enough about the resurrection. God did, not, God did not send Jesus Christ to the cross so that you and I could float around in spirit form in some place filled with clouds. Do you get what I'm saying? Because that's Hollywood's idea of heaven. Like, you know, you'll just, you get to go to heaven and that, no, no. Christ went to the cross to purchase our redemption and conquer death 
so that we could be raised again bodily and be immortal, that we might live forever in this kingdom. Do you see? A real kingdom, beloved. Not floating on clouds. Yeah, playing harps. I couldn't get the, I was like, what? That's violin. No. <laughs> Lindsey Sterling, that's what I was thinking. No. Um, you know, harps and stuff. What? That, I'm sorry. No wonder people aren't motivated to live for Christ. I mean, in, in one sense, because that's what you're offering, floating around on clouds. Oh, I see. So it's an option. Either I burn in hell forever in fire, or I float around in clouds. Oh, I'll just take my chances. I don't know. What are you talking? It's so much gl- more glorious than that, so much more significant. God made us. When he made us, he didn't mess up. He made us in this form. Yes, hands and feet and eyes and brains, right? But sin entered into the world and made a mess of things. But Christ, in God's perfect plan, came redeemed us, rose again, conquered the penalty of sin, which is death, separation from God, both soul and body. He conquered it. There's no more debt to be paid that you and I might be redeemed and raise again one day in God's timing to live again, but this time not for a while, but forever with Christ as our king in a real kingdom with real Land and homes and commerce, a real kingdom, beloved, a real land, not some ghouly God. I don't even know what that is. That's Hollywood. How depressing that would be. I don't even know where I left off here. Okay. The resurrection of God's people. So important. I can't wait because Easter's is coming. Easter's. Easter is coming up. Whoa, Easter is coming up, and we celebrate the resurrection, but I I think for most people, it just kind of goes over their head how significant that is to live again forever as God originally intended in his world, on his earth, but this time without the presence of sin and without the curse. Wow. And with the Lord ruling and reigning. I'm not going to have to listen to any more Fox or CNN or any other MSNBC or anything about all the chaos and all the mess and all the world. Nope, because my Lord will be ruling and reigning from his throne. Can you imagine a world like that? Imagine it. Imagine it, beloved. The end of all things is at hand. So then he goes on, the New Testament clarifies and expands these features as described in the Old Testament. The king is rejected. So this is what we see. The king came. Yes, the king came. But his people rejected him. The nation of Israel said, crucify him. We will have no king but Caesar. Yeah. The king came. He was rejected and executed. But he promises, we read all this in the New Testament, Act 2, he promises to come back in glory. This time bringing judgment. Resurrection. And his kingdom for all who believe. Innumerable, Innumerable Gentiles from every nation will be included among the redeemed. Israel will be saved and grafted back into the root 
of blessings. That's Romans. We went through that, 9 through 11. From which she has been temporarily excised. During this time, Israel has rejected their Messiah. The gospel has gone forth into all the world, into all the nations, to all the Gentiles. And God is doing a a miraculous work. He is still saving Jewish people. But primarily, he is gathering from every tribe and every tongue and every nation Gentiles unto himself in preparation for the coming kingdom. Israel will be saved, tribulation, and grafted back into the root of blessings from which she has been, I already read that, temporarily excised. Israel's promised kingdom, it was promised to them, beloved, will be enjoyed with the Lord's Savior reigning on the throne in the renewed earth, exercising power over the whole world and receiving due honor and worship. And oh, I cannot wait. I cannot wait. I am so forward looking to a time where Christ will not be mocked ever again. Where I don't have to listen to the foolish conversations of people denying Christ, denying the resurrection, denying God. You'll never hear again, God is dead. Because he'll be right there. Right there, ruling and reigning from his throne. I'll never ever again hear his name used as a swear word. He will be worshipped, and I will be worshipping him. So, the end of all things is at hand is, is all things are ready now for Christ to return and rule. We are, we are right there on the brink of that. This statement, the end of all things is at hand, is not a doomsday statement, and it's not depressing, but it's encouraging, and it's motivating, and it is quite sobering, or at least it should be. It should get you focused. We are living on the threshold, on the brink of the coming of the great king and his rule and reign in the promised and glorious kingdom of God. God's glorious plan, beloved, for the ages is is on the verge of completion. Its fulfillment is at the door. And when God opens that door, it will come. It will come. Okay. Now let's take a look in light of that. The end of all things is at hand consummation, the kingdom of God and the king in all of his glory. In light of that, let's look at the first exhortation. 1 Peter 4, 7. Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. And like I said, I'm trying to help you feel the full weight of that statement. Therefore, Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. It looks like we're only going to cover that first one. I was hoping to cover love as well. But uh, you'll, Lord willing, come back next week and we'll pick up uh, 
from there. But this, this morning, just prayers. Let's, let's stick on this first exhortation. The New American Standard Bible, uh, it's, it's for prayer is the idea, for the purpose of prayer or for prayer. For prayer. That they are to be uh, sober-minded, as Peter commands here. So, so let me put this together for you. In light of the fact that all things are ready, all things are ready for the King of kings, the Lord Jesus, to return and judge and establish his glorious kingdom on the earth and reign over it in righteousness, in light of the fact that we are living in the in the great last act of the drama of redemption and that the curtain could fall at any time, ushering in the end of the age and the fulfillment of the long-anticipated kingdom of God on earth, in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand or near, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. That is, that is the way to read it. So let me, let me, again, keep driving this home for you. So sober-minded and self-controlled, sober-minded and self-controlled, the two underlying Greek verbs that are translated that way in our English translation, sober-minded and self-controlled, they are similar in meaning, similar in meaning. They're both, both emphasizing the same idea, just a slight, slight nuance. The verb translated be sober-minded, it means to be what you might think it means, clear-headed, clear-headed, okay? Be clear-headed. And the verb translated be self-controlled means to be of sound mind, sound mind, or to be of, of sound judgment. That's actually how the New American Standard Bible translates it. Be of sound judgment. One writer trying to explain that word a little more. It's, it means thinking about and evaluating situations maturely and correctly. Maturely and correctly. Another writer adds this when trying to understand the Greek word. It means to be, uh, to be self-controlled here, to be of sound judgment. It means to be under control and not carried away by excessive emotion or uncontrolled passion. All right? Those are the words. Now, the uh, NIV, and this is where translations do matter. They're not, they're not uh, it's good to consider other translations, but when the translators sit down, they're trying to translate the text. Sometimes they translate in a way that actually it gives a slightly different meaning. In this case, that would be true with the NIV. The NIV translates this passage, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. So that you can pray. NIV is a very popular translation. Here, I would push back against that translation. Uh, I don't think, I don't believe that that is what the text is. Certainly not indicating that. That was an interpretive decision by the NIV translators. Peter's not saying be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can actually pray or simply pray, but rather be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Uh, prayer is assumed, Okay? Prayer is assumed. So he's not saying, you know, get your head straight so that you might be able to pray. No, get your head straight so that your prayers would be benefited. 
It literally says in the Greek, four prayers. Be self-controlled and sober-minded, four prayers. It's for the sake of or for the benefit of their prayers, okay? To these Christian readers undergoing suffering in various churches in modern-day Turkey. So I believe Peter's point is this. In light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand, Christians need to think clearly, maturely, correctly, soberly, so that when they pray to God, they might pray more appropriately. Or in a matter that is more suitable or more proper given the present circumstances. One writer says this, prayer is the access to all spiritual resources. Yes. Okay? It's, it is the access to all spiritual resources. In order for us to accomplish our task, God calls us to pray. But believers cannot pray properly if their minds are unstable due to worldly pursuits, temporary pursuits, got their mind in the world, or ignorance of divine truth, or indifference to divine purposes. If, if, if their thinking is not in line with God's thinking, if they're not thinking about things rightly and correctly, if they're not seeing reality as they should see it, as God has revealed it to us, that the kingdom of God is coming and it's right on the verge, it's right at the door and understanding all that that means, if they don't get that, if they don't understand that, or whether they have their head in the world instead of on the things above, then how in the world are they going to pray properly? And properly in accordance with God's will, His desires, His purposes. Now, Consider for a moment some of the prayer requests of those who knew the end of all things is at hand. They lived it. They breathed it. They dreamt it. They spoke of it. They lived it out. Consider for a moment those prayers. Paul, writing from prison. What might be your prayer while you're in prison, beloved? And by the way, not prison for robbing a bank, right? We've talked about this. Not prison for drunk driving, but prison for preaching Christ. Okay? What might be your prayer? Yeah. Keep me away from Bubba over there. That's all I'm saying, Lord. I am a thin man. I'm not very strong. I'm fairly good looking. I'm just nervous, God. I'm nervous. I don't know. I could imagine that would be what I'm... Anyway, so this is what the Apostle Paul <laughs> prays, right? Ephesians chapter 6, writing from prison to the saints in Ephesus. Keep alert with all perseverance. Making supplication, that's request to God, for all the saints, for all the saints, and also for me, 
that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. (laughs) That's your prayer request? That's it? One writer commenting on that says, Paul does not ask for prayer for his personal well-being or physical comfort in the imprisonment from which he wrote, but for boldness and faithfulness to continue proclaiming the gospel to the unsaved no matter what the cost. Does that? A man who is living in the reality that the consummation of all things is at hand. By the way, beloved, when the Lord comes and welcomes all the saved into his kingdom that he establishes here on the earth, there'll be no more discomfort for us. There'll be no more imprisonment for us. Anything that we may have lost here will be restored tenfold, one hundredfold in the kingdom. And in the kingdom, you and I will live, if we are believers of Jesus Christ, forever. But right now, before the final act has occurred, we have a mission. We are on, our task is to make citizens of that kingdom. Yes, right? That is our mission. That is what God has called us to do. Listen, I've left you here for a while, for a time. I have your days all numbered. You don't know how long they will be, but I have left you here, Christian. I have, I have drawn you out of darkness and placed you into this marvelous light. I have placed you here and left you here and put you in these circumstances for a time that you might proclaim the excellencies of me, that you might make Jesus Christ known, that you might lead others to him, because he is right at the door. And when he comes back, if the people that have still rejected him and have not bowed their knee to him will be judged. They will be judged. They will perish. How does one become a citizen of the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ? I'm asking a question that you guys should know. You know the answer to, yes? How does one, think of it that way. Don't think of just how does one get to heaven, see? And then heaven, we just think of things that maybe aren't biblical. How does one gain entrance into the coming kingdom of God that is at hand? It's near. The king is right there at any moment. How does one gain entrance into that kingdom? We don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder because Jesus tells us. And Jesus says something interesting in John chapter 3, in verses 3 and 5. He says, one cannot enter the kingdom of God unless they have been born again. That's right. Do you understand why now maybe Paul, while in prison, is praying, God, pray, Saints, pray. Pray for all the saints, but pray also for me that I might make this gospel known no matter what. That I might lead more to Jesus Christ. 
that they might be born again because the kingdom of God is near. The breaking of of that glory and the king and his coming and his judgment, it's near. So while it's still day, while I still have time, I must make him known. Pray that I might be bold because there is pushback against that. They're locking me up for this stuff. Do you see that? How about Colossians 4? Maybe it's just that one? No, there, this, is, this is the pattern. Verse 3 and 4, at the same time, Paul says, pray also for us. What, Paul? That God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Another prison epistle. That I may make it clear. Pray that I might make it clear that people would understand. Why? What's, what's the urgency? The end of all things is at hand. Which is how I ought to speak, he says. How about 2 Thessalonians 3.1? Different translation. Found this one to be a little bit helpful. Finally, brothers and sisters, pray for us. Here we go again. Pray that the Lord's message will spread quickly. Quickly. What's the sense of urgency? What's that all about? Yeah, pray that it eventually gets its way around. Pray that it spreads quickly. Pray that others will honor it just as you did. The end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. So here's what Peter's saying. Therefore, get your head straight. Focus. Think rightly and clearly about reality. Be of sound judgment so that you would pray more appropriately that your prayers might be more fitting. And let me flesh this out for you a little bit. And then we'll close. I was trying to think through. So are we not to pray for anything else except salvation? Certainly not. We see, as we move through the scriptures, we see the saints praying for for other things. And, And Peter even tells us another place to cast all of our cares upon God. For he cares for us. All of our cares. He loves us. So we take everything to him. But let me tell you, let me, let me try to help you maybe understand, as I'm trying to work through it as well, how living in light of the fact that, that the end of all things is at hand, that the culmination, the consummation, the kingdom of God and the king and his glory, it's near, it's near. And in light of that, being sober-minded and self-controlled and concerning my mind, having a clear head so that I... I would pray more appropriately, more appropriately, okay? So here's how that might look. Like, we pray for work, yeah? We pray for work. We pray for a job. But, and, that, there's, and you should, because I'm taking all my, casting all my cares upon the Lord. Father, I'm out of work, let's say. I need work. I need to provide. I need to provide for my family. You've called me to do that. And it's very hard to provide for them without work, Father, help me find work. Help me find a job. And that is good and right that I would go to God with that prayer. But let me not stop there. Now let me say, God, may you put me in a place where I might make Christ known. Where there would be unbelievers in my presence. Maybe, Father. Father, if it be your will that you put me with all believers, yeah, good luck with that. You know what I'm saying? 
Where's that? Maybe me. I work around, you know, I think they're all believers um, at the church. I think, I'm pretty sure. But in most situations, you're surrounded by, at least I think Thomas is, you're surrounded by (laughs) unbelievers, yes? So, but even praying, Father and Father, help me to be the witness I need to be to these who are not yet citizens of the coming kingdom, who have yet not bowed their knee to the king of kings. And if they don't bow now, if they don't willingly bring themselves under him, they will be forced to bow. And understanding all that that means, Father, help me to be a good witness. Help me to open my mouth. Help me not to dishonor you or confuse people about Christianity. Put me in that place, Lord. I'm going to push it. I'm going to push a little harder. So you're in the hospital. Huh? Maybe you've been given a very, very bad diagnosis. You're going to die. You're going to the hospital. You're at the hospital. You know that you're probably going to die. What do you pray for? Father, I, I would like to spend a little more time here on earth. I, I would like to see my kids get married, or I would like to see my grandkids grow up, or I would like to not leave my spouse. Father, if, if, it would, if you'd be so merciful, may you heal me, may you heal me. Nothing wrong with that prayer, beloved. But do we stop there? Father, while I'm here, while I'm here, Oh, give me strength. Give me faith. Increase my faith, Father, that I may not question you or turn away from you, but that I might stand strong in you, so strong indeed that the nurses and the doctors begin to ask me questions. They begin to say, why? Why are you so strong in the, in the face of such tragedy? Why? Why do you have joy? Father, may that be that I might tell them that I might make known to them the coming king, the one in whom my hope is placed, the one in whom in his kingdom gives me the strength, knowing that this is temporary anyway. At some point, this has to come to an end. But in the next age to come, I will have a resurrected and glorified body, and I will never, ever, ever again lay in a hospital bed. I will be with my king. I want to tell people about that. Lord, help me to do that. These people were suffering, beloved. Right? Can you imagine? They're suffering. Again, not for stealing. They're suffering just because they were honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. And the world hates God, and therefore it hates the followers of God. And that animosity is expressed in a variety of ways. And sometimes it comes out very hard. Very directed. Can you imagine their prayers? Father, you know, get me out of this. But think about, think about what Peter says as we've read through these passages. Hey, live a righteous life even in the face of that persecution. Do it so that it'll shut the mouth of those who deny God. Do it that you might even draw your unbelieving husband. Continue to honor the Lord and live as you should as I've called you to live. 
So then the prayer would be something like this, Father, I'm in this messed up marriage with this idiot that you've given to me in this providence, your providence, and you are good. I know you are good. You have a good plan. Father, help me to live for you that this guy might see the wonder that is Jesus, that he might receive you as I have, that he might be born again so that he might enter into the kingdom that is at hand. Yeah? The end of all things is at hand, beloved. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Let's pray. Father in heaven, considering this passage, I ask you now, I pray now, Father, for those that are here and they are not citizens of your kingdom. They are not. They have not bowed their knees to the Lord Jesus Christ. They have not repented of their sin and turned to him as their Lord and Savior. But oh, we are glad that they are here. I rejoice, Father, that they are here. And Father, I pray for them right now. There are so many other places they could be. But Father, they are here. By your sovereign hand, they are here. They may have been coming for a long time. This may be their first time or their second time. But they do not know the Lord Jesus Christ in this way. They may know of him, but they have no saving relationship with him. For them, Father, I pray. I pray, Lord, Father, that you would sovereignly work even now through your spirit to convict them of their sin. Father, they know they're sinners. Their conscience bears witness to it. They know they've violated your laws in multiple ways. They have continued to rebel against you. They have not bowed their knee. Father, I pray you bring them to that place where they recognize their guilt before you, that they are guilty sinners, just as we all recognize, Father. And Father, I pray that you would help them see that the only solution to their problem is the Lord Jesus Christ who laid down his life on the cross that they might be forgiven, set free, washed clean, and declared right in your sight through his blood, through his death, through his perfect substitutionary sacrifice, that they might turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, turning away from their sin, and call out upon him to save them even now, Father. I pray that they would do that even now. Father, for your word declares, for whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, born again, made new, and made citizens of that coming kingdom. Father, I pray you do your work of salvation, and I thank you even for what we get to enjoy this afternoon, the celebration of your salvation in the waters of baptism. Father, recognizing this internal work that is taken place in these young people that you have saved them and in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ following in the practice of baptism. Father, we thank you for that. But Lord, I pray for those who still are here and they know you're not. May that not be the case any longer, Father. May they cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. We ask this in his name, in the King's name, 